Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Stay with us for the hour ahead as we get a fresh set of flight tips from the ultimate frequent flyer himself, Johnny Jett. He has advice for making your next flight more comfortable. When people start complaining about their flights, I'm like, are you kidding me? Why don't you drive from L.A. to New York and tell me how much that cost and how long it took? Then we'll head for rural Japan beyond Tokyo. Lonely Planet's Andrew Bender takes your calls and offers a peek at the quieter side of Japan and how visitors can get a taste of its traditions. And I think one of the great things about Japan is that even in the midst of this very modern society, you'll find something that's very traditional. And we'll share more inspiring stories with travel writer Don George about how the kindness of strangers saved the day when venturing into unfamiliar territory. I discovered in my own travels around the world, two things always happen to me. One is I get into trouble, and the other is that somebody comes out of nowhere to take care of me and get me out of trouble. We're here to give you the confidence to venture wherever your travel dreams are taking you. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're finding out how to experience the traditional side of Japan without going broke. And we'll discover how interacting with the locals, regardless of the language barrier, can make a huge difference in your travels. Let's start with tips for making the flight a more enjoyable part of your travels with the ultimate frequent flyer himself who goes by the name of Johnny Jet. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Johnny Jet, and Johnny Jet is uh, actually John DeScala, but uh, he runs a company called Johnny Jet, and that's a sexy name. JohnnyJet.com, <laughs> and Johnny spends 270 days a year flying and traveling, and just knowing what's out there in the airline industry. He's written a book on uh, booking things smartly through the internet. Runs a website where he connects travelers with other websites. It's great to have you here, Johnny, to talk a little bit about flying and the internet. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. You spend how many days a year flying? I'm traveling about 275. I usually fly okay. about 100 times a year. Wow. Do you feel safe on airplanes? I do. I fly usually about 30 different carriers a year. 30 different carriers a year. Do you have a favorite? I like Singapore. I used to love EOS. They went under, they were just New York, London, but that was Was that right? Why yeah. did you like that? It was just first class. Everything was first class. Really? I only did it once, but wow. Was it one of those cigar For, airlines? It was 48 seats on the 757. Expensive? Uh, yeah. What would it cost for a round trip on EOS? But it was cheaper than a business class ticket on uh, British Airways or Virgin. It was like $3,500. So if, if you're a business traveler, people compare flights, and they're usually comparing coach fares. If one airline is cheaper with coach fares, would it follow that it is less expensive in the business class also? It all depends. Yeah, It all depends. But, I mean, there's so many great carriers out there. Most of the international carriers, I love them, like Emirates, yeah. uh, Air New Zealand. What European airlines do you like? British Airways. You like British Airways? I do like British Airways. I like Air France. I like Lufthansa. I don't know why. Just... I've only done Lufthansa in Europe. They got leather seats. I like that. <laughs> and the British are always apologizing for stuff. They can do one little screw up and for the rest of the flight, they're apologizing for it. I guess it's just that British politeness, you know? Yeah. Why do you like Singapore so much? The people are so friendly. The food yeah. is never ending. But isn't that sort of standard with Asian airlines? All Asian airlines. Thai, Thai. Airways, great. Thai I love is Thai. like heroic that yeah, way. I love it. You get spoiled. You do. I, mean, I just I, did Cathay Pacific in coach to Hong Kong for 14 and a half hours, and it was fine. I think I'd go back and forth just for the service. <laughs> <laughs> so now when you're flying, everybody's talking about it's so miserable to fly these days. I don't find it that miserable to fly, and I think people who fly a lot realize that, hey, it beats taking the bus, and you're going to have to wait in line here and take off your shoes there and so on. What are your some tips for um, security at airports? Well, first of all, people are spoiled these days. I yeah. mean, it's amazing. When people start complaining about their flights, I'm like, are you kidding me? Why don't you drive from L.A. to New York and tell me how much that cost and how long it took? In fact, not even the the time and, and the safety, but the cost. It would cost more to drive than to Way fly. Way more to drive. I mean, you, you do the arithmetic. It would probably cost more to drive than to it's get a cheap flight. way more. So be thankful, but still, you got right. security. How security. Do you, what do you do for security? First of all, you have to be prepared. You have to be patient. There's probably going to be a line, so show up early. Don't be running late. Now, a lot of people have a bad attitude about security. That's not going to accomplish anything, is it? It's These not. guys just are following orders. Just, you know, make sure you have your change out, your all the metal stuff in a little bag if you want, and put it through the security. Get your laptop out, take your shoes off, and go. Do you take any liquids? I don't. No? No. I if just... I do have them, I have them in the one-quart bag. Yeah. You know, and they have to be three ounces or less. Do you bury your toothpaste or do you put it in your bag? They don't. They, I just put it in my bag. I've always. They, I, they never, never, they never catch me. They've never caught my toothpaste, so I don't. I the don't only place it catches me is the Fort Lauderdale airport. In which one? Fort Lauderdale. Oh, really? Yeah. When they say, do you have any liquids, do you know what I say? Only in my bladder. 
<laughs> okay, so follow the rules, but don't go overboard. If you got tweezers, you can just bury them in your bag. Tweezers, yeah. That's you no know, You're allowed to just, bring that on. Okay, that's great. Do you recommend uh, carrying on or checking? I think people pack too much. Yeah. I'm sure you're the same way. Yeah. I mean, when I travel, even when I go on a round-the-world trip, I'm having carry-on only. Yeah. You only need, I, I bring a pair of sneakers, a pair of shoes. Think uh, of what you need, yeah. Enough underwear, uh, socks. And look forward to, if you get a, a little problem, you can buy yourself out of the gym anywhere in the world these days. Anywhere, unless There's you're going to remote. There's still that nonsense that they don't have deodorant or razor blades yeah. or, or nylons over there or whatever. You know, that's from the 60s. They've got what you need. You'll, and you'll get it from your hotel, too. You'll get the shampoo, the that's soap, true, whatever. That's so. yeah. And I, I always tell people, you know, you're going for two weeks or two months. Philosophically, you pack exactly the same. You're, you're not going hiking in the mountains here. Yeah, and you know what? You, you print your boarding pass at home. Print your boarding pass at home. Now, this is a, a surprising. A lot of people don't do that. It is. You, you can't do it on a lot of international carriers when you're flying overseas. Okay. But domestically, that way you'll save an hour. And if you don't check bags, you'll save an hour beforehand and afterwards because you go right to the gate. That's amazing. If you don't check bags, right? You've got your. I save so much time. So the only line you stand in is security. Yep. Like I used to be able to go to the airport in like clockwork. I'm, I go there 30 minutes before my flight. I got 50 minutes to wait. I'm on the plane. Now I got to give myself that extra 30 minutes of flex because I don't know how long the security lines are going to be. You don't know. So all around the United States, you can still hit a bottleneck when the security lines are really longer than what you anticipated. You can. So you just have to be sure. I mean, if you're flying during peak times, yeah. chances are you're going to get a little. But there's also a website. The, the TSA has a website out there that shows you wait times. Is it's, that right? It's not live. It's historic information. Okay. But it'll give you an idea. Of how long you wait. In, I ask at hotels, how long do you generally have to get to the airport ahead of time? And it's unfortunate that I think we just got to live with that. We give ourselves an extra 30-minute cushion because of security lines. Is that right? Yeah. You'd rather be early than late. What about curbside checking? If it's a long line inside, it's worth the $2 you have to pay extra. It's, it's just a $2 two. fee, right? Yeah. So, but, And also, you still have to tip the guy. Okay. If it's a, as typical nervous departure mornings are or something. I mean, if you're going to pay 10 bucks to oh, not have to wait in the I, line for your whole family, yeah. that's a pretty good deal. For sure. You just roll up and you give the guy a good tip and he's going to make sure it's on the plane. So if, is this a standard thing? It's $2 per bag around the country for curbside checking I mean, as far as you know? Airlines are different. So they'll, they'll tell you. Yeah. So that's a good tip, I think. It is. If, you're, if, if, if you have you a lot of bags money. and there's a long line inside. If there's a long line. If there's not a long line, then you might as well just go right in. You fly a hundred different flights a year or whatever. Do you care about where you sit on the airplane? Of course. I mean, that I really do. Why? I, I When I fly in economy, I try and get an exit row aisle. Exit row aisle. Because it gives me the most leg room. I can take my laptop out and work on it. Don't have to worry about someone smashing yeah. it You know when they recline. Oh, I hate that. Has a computer ever been ruined by a seat going back like that? Oh, not mine, luckily. But Does it happen? All the time. It just freaks me out. I'm just deep into my work. I got my laptop there and then... Wham! And yeah. I go, oh, my computer almost got decapitated. Yeah. You have to make sure that there's enough room. So also, you don't put it in that little niche that the... Uh, exactly. That this, that the and also when the flight there. attendant comes by serving drinks, always shut your laptop. Sometimes they yeah. spill. Yeah. And you get on the keyboard, you're done. You are done. Oh, my goodness. So my worst thing on a long flight is a seat that doesn't recline because I'm in front of the exit row, right? Yeah. Those usually do not recline. Go to a website called SeatGuru.com. SeatGuru.com. And it will tell you every airline and every seat. There's also another uh, website, SeatExpert.com. And I'm 6'2", and I do not like a bulkhead seat because I can't stretch my legs out. But you like an exit row, I bet. I like an exit row, yeah, because it gives me more room to um, yeah. work on my laptop. And before I get on the plane, I always ask the gate agent, is this flight full? She says no. I ask, can I get a seat that has an empty seat next to me or even a whole row? Yeah, you ask that. I try and become one of the last people to board you know in I that do. case, unless I, I'm carrying a lot of stuff I on the first. I am always, as a matter of practice, I like to be the last person on the airplane. Why sit on the airplane longer than, than enjoy just sitting in the lobby? You're going to be cooping up in the airplane anyways. I've never not been able to put my bag in the overhead. Well, that's that's the only reason to get on early. My, my cameraman with a big camera gets on right away because he needs he, three he needs spots space, up yeah. above. And what I like about it is... Then I can scan the airplane and see where there's more seats. And if I'm the last person on, I can sit anywhere I want. It's true. But ask the gate agent, too. You can ask the gate yeah, agent. Yeah, I bring a box of chocolates with me, usually. And I'll give the gate agent a box of chocolates and say, listen. Come you know, on. I do, do you really? Of course. <laughs> I even do it for the flight attendants. I make friends with the flight attendants, and they, you know they'll bring me bottles of champagne. Well, that works. I sit and talk to them in the back. I mean, and when I'm checking and I look for somebody that looks like they might watch my TV show and like it, <laughs> that works. Wonders. I don't have that privilege. You don't have that privilege. Okay, so you like um, exit row. Yep. But you have to do that work if the plane crashes. Then, um, well, if the plane's going to crash, you'll, you'll happily do that work. Yeah, I'd rather be the one doing it than someone else. Well, that's good. Yeah, you got a lot of people sitting. In the middle row. And I always look at these people. I never, for some reason, I never sit in the middle row. 
And I think, you know, a third of the people sit in the middle row. It's not as nice as sitting on a window or an aisle. No, it's because they didn't take the time to do their homework. So the basic thing is check in online before you go. Check in online or when you book your reservation online, you can even do it. You can choose your seat assignment. It's just a matter of if you don't ask for it, you don't get it. Yeah. And if not, call them up. Yeah. Even even when the airline says, like, we can't do it, I just keep calling every day or, and try and get another agent who will be friendly and release the seat. Is there a time of day or week or month that is best for getting out there and snapping up special deals that happen to just arrive on the Internet? You know, every expert says there's a different day or a different time. I look at every time and every day. But especially, I mean, after midnight, a lot of the seats are released. So if people put something on hold, you can call up after midnight or log on after midnight because if someone had it on hold, it will be released after midnight, usually local time. After midnight in that company's local time. And same thing with frequent flyer seats. So you want to call, usually they load the frequent flyer seats 330 <laughs> days in advance. So sometimes you just kind of logging on and, hot dog, I was right there and we've got this thing that just came available. If you see it, you got to get it. You, you, just, you have to jump it. <laughs> you can't ask your spouse, oh, should we do this? You just have to hop on it or try It'll and hold, or hold come, it. Or hold it, yeah. American Airlines lets you hold them online, yeah. which I love, I for love 24 it. hours. Yeah, that's great. I'm talking, by the way, with Johnny Jett. He runs a company called johnnyjett.com. You can go there and see all the work that he does on his website to help people travel smartly with the Internet. John, do you concern yourself with the financial health of airlines when booking tickets in advance? Yeah, actually I do. I, I won't book that far in advance. First of all, you want to do a, you know 60 days or less. That way, if the airline does go under, your credit card will... Ah, is that to cut off 60 yeah, days or 60 less days. for your credit, credit card. card act? Oh, that's a good tip. Yeah. What scenario would somebody book more than 60 days out? Well, let's say you're a school teacher or you have kids and the only holiday you get, you know, yeah. what, you know, which, you know which day your holidays so are. Everybody's taking a week on Christmas to go up to the mountains or something. So that's going to be a, you figure you're going to book that four months in advance. You know, you're At least. Go. I mean, and a little fair care is like JetBlue and Southwest, they're not going anywhere anytime soon. Right. So you should book them as far in advance as possible because you'll get the cheapest deal. How do you find out the financial health of various airlines? You have to read the travel news. But that's one advantage of using a travel agent. My travel agent won't book me on certain airlines because they say, you know, they're not paying their bills. And there's a question if they'll be able to bring you home. Yeah, that is a good reason to use a travel agent. And I do use them. All right. Fascinating stuff. Johnny Jett runs a website called johnnyjett.com. You've got a newsletter that comes out. A weekly newsletter. It's free. Just put your email in and that's all you have to do. All right. Hey, thanks for joining us. Happy travels. Thank you. Happy travels to you. Let's take a boat to Bermuda. Let's take a plane to St. Paul Let's grab a kayak to Quincy or Nyack Let's get away from it all Let's take a trip in a trailer No need to come back at all Let's take a powder to Boston for chowder Let's get away from it all Let's leave our hut, dear, get out of our rut, dear. Let's get away from it all. Next, a look at visiting rural Japan beyond Tokyo and how being open to meeting the locals can make all the difference in how you experience the world. We're at 877-333-RICK. It's Travel with Rick Steves. I'm David Sedaris from the United States, and I travel with Rick Steves. Watashi wa David Sedaris des. Wait. I travel with Rick Steve. Ricky Rick Steve's Steve's son. There. But you know uh, what always gets a laugh in Japan? Always. What's that? You finish your business and then you say, Itakimasu. And that means <laughs> that? I'm leaving now. And people howl with laughter. Is that right? Itakimasu. Itakimasu. Domo arigato. Doitashimashite. That means you're welcome. Japan's one of the most fascinating countries I've ever explored. The food, the friendliness, the culture, the challenges of getting connected with the traditional countryside away from the big cities. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today I'm joined by the co-author of the Lonely Planet Guidebook to Japan, Andrew Bender. Andy, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Rick. It's great to be here. You know, that's that's the challenge for a traveler, I think, is to go to Japan, get away from Tokyo, and find the traditional culture. What is your advice in that regard? Well, you don't have to go very far from Tokyo even just to find it. But if you want to, there's a whole big country out there. Even if you're going to stay within the Tokyo area, you can take a quick train ride and find yourself within two hours in the city of Nikko. 
There's some fabulous, fabulous old shrines there that are about 400 years old, set in the mountains in the middle of the forest. In fact, the entire area is one great shrine. There's a main, very famous shrine of Nikko called Toshogu, gleaming with gold and lanterns everywhere you look, several different buildings. It's a fabulous, fabulous place. It's probably the Japan you had in your dreams when you thought about it. There's a whole Nikko National Park, which goes on for many, many, many square miles with hikes and hot springs and all those wonderful things that sort of typify Japan in a lot of people's minds. So that's Nikko. How do you spell that? N-I-K-K-O. All right, and that's a, like a first side trip from Tokyo if you want to get the contrast. That's a classic side trip from Tokyo, yes. All right. Now, I remember looking, I spent days looking for villages that were like not connected to the modern world, and uh, I concluded that the modern world permeates Japan. Is it possible to get away from it all as far as finding a little village that's, that's less connected? Absolutely. There is an old historic road that went through the mountains of Japan called the Nakasendo. Obviously, in those days, they didn't have cars, so people walked. And the Nakasendo goes through the mountains near Nagano. And there's also a city called uh, Takayama, which is not far from there, and Matsumoto. Nagano, of course, is where the Olympics were held in 1998. This this Nakasendo has along it all these little post towns, and many of those have been preserved in their state from, you know, two or three hundred years ago. Hmm. Uh, there's one in particular called that I particularly like called Sumago. It's spelled T-S-U-M-A-G-O, and it's right in the center there. There's a little main street, which is completely closed off to traffic, and you've got traditional crafts that are made out of a local cedar. You've got these wonderful old inns that are you know, several hundred years old, some of them. Some of them have appeared in movies. It's about as picturesque as you can possibly get in Japan. Now, would these old inns be ryokans? Yes. So this the, ryokan experience is something that should be on your list whenever you're going to Japan, I would think. Mm-hmm. A ryokan is basically the Japanese word for an inn. If you never have any other experience in Japan, this is a great one to try. Your room doubles as a bedroom and the living room and an everything room because it's got tatami mats on the floor, and basically it's just plain. When you walk in, uh, there will be a short table on the floor and some cushions and perhaps a, a short chair on the floor as well. And then your host or hostess will come and serve you tea and uh, some kind of a suite. That will be your welcome. Uh, you can go explore the village if you like and then come back, have dinner in your inn, in some cases, you have dinner in your room, and so in other inns, there's a dining room where you go. And then by the time you're done with dinner, your bedding is all laid out on the table and the chairs are gone. Are you still supposed to take a, a hot bath before your dinner? Absolutely. That's one of the pleasures of being in Japan. Japan is a, is a real bathing culture. I had this incredible Ryokan experience. The w woman said, your bath is ready or something like this. And I said, I don't need a bath. She looked at me like, that's not an option. Your bath is ready. <laughs> Go soak in the hot water. And it was, you know, when when I jump into my hot tub, 100, 405 is about the right uh, hot as I want. This was much hotter than that, and it was a, it was a beautiful experience. And it made the I could see why she didn't want to serve me dinner until I had soaked. Mm -hmm. Well, you're in that sort of dream state anyway after you get out of a bath like that. Uh, the, the interesting thing about Japanese baths, though, is that they work a little differently from baths here in the U.S. In the U.S., you take your soap and you take your washcloth and you get into the bath and you wash yourself off and then you drain the bathtub when it's done. Well, in Japan, the bathtub is for soaking. It's more like your hot tub. And you clean yourself in a little area outside the bath. Nowadays, there are shower nozzles and washcloths and soap all out there. But in the traditional days, uh, people would sit on little benches and they'd have very low spigots uh, low to the ground and, and sort of douse themselves with hot water from the spigots use the soap and shampoo and whatever to clean themselves off really, really well, rinse themselves off again, and then, only then, would you get in the big tub. That has got to be one of the great experiences on this planet, doing the whole nine yards when it comes to a ryokan. Frankly, I don't care what it costs. If you get into Japan and if you get out in the countryside, follow your guidebook and take advantage of this ryokan opportunity. I'm speaking with Andrew Bender. He's the Lonely Planet author of The Japan Guide. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. And Mariko is on the line from Albany, California. Hi, Mariko. Oh, hi. How are you? Thanks for calling. <laughs> Do you have a comment for Andrew? Uh, well, I myself uh, organize small group tours uh, for Americans to visit the countryside of Japan. And I used to be a tour guide in Japan when I was there. I was born and raised in Japan. That uh, being a tour guide, uh, I thought that the places we visit, uh, we uh, take people, uh, take Americans, is uh, very superficial. And then I thought to myself, gee, this is not the real Japan. 
So as a tour guide, what is your um, challenge? What should Americans understand that they don't understand? Um, they'd just be great if they uh, open their minds when they meet people, and then nothing they need, uh, just be a person. And so I take people to the countryside often, and that's a place where, just like here in the United States, you will meet the real people when you are away from a big city tourism. And uh, it's really fun. And then in my experience, you know, I always feel like how simple people are, you know, regardless of age or cultural background or ethnicity. When they meet, when they experience the kindness of other people, they get really moved. And that makes the most colorful memory of the travel. Yeah, one of my colorful memories would be I was there in the winter, and Uh they had all of these outdoor sake bars, Uh and they had tarp around them to keep the heat in, Uh and they had lanterns inside. I can imagine. Uh And you would sit on a stool, Uh and they would pour your sake, Uh and it would be hot sake, Uh and you would never know how many sakes you've drank because they kept filling it up before it was empty. Uh Uh So it was like uh, sort of this sake nirvana. Uh Andrew, do you know about that experience? Absolutely. The custom is in Japan is that you never fill your own glass and other people are supposed to watch for yours. So if your glass gets even a little bit empty, you can bet that somebody's going to That's uh, be there to fill it up for you. Very nice. That is called yatai. Y-A-T-A-I. And what does that it's mean? The name is the vendors outside. So it's covered by this tarp. See, these are the charming things about going to Japan. The... Uh, whatever that's called, the uh, the little yeah, hot sake bars uh-huh, uh-huh, on the street. Uh-huh. Another memory was uh, getting an ekibento for uh-huh, these shinkansen, uh-huh. a uh-huh. delicate wooden uh, uh-huh. lunch to go, uh-huh. made out of balsa wood, uh-huh. and it's a, a box lunch, but that's right. but made like a, a work of art. Uh-huh. That's right. You enjoy eating uh, ekiben, that's what we call it. Ekiben. Yeah, uh, while um, enjoying the uh, scenery outside. Yeah. Or sitting stocking feet on a ferry sailing the Sea of Japan uh-huh. over to uh, Shikoku. I'll never forget. Oh, yeah, that's the inland. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Being on a ferry where everybody's eating little oranges in uh-huh. their stocking feet. Uh-huh. It's just like yeah. magical. Mariko, when you, when you say about taking people uh, away from the tourist traps, uh-huh. what's an example of some place you would go that the main tourists would not go? Uh, for example, uh, I just came back from a tour of uh, Japan seaside. And there, uh, in this season, October and November, uh, is a season uh, when they uh, welcome the god back home. They have uh, sacred dances performed in a small uh, shrines in an old village, and where only the villagers uh, come, you know, young and old and babies, and everybody comes and stay in the small shrines. And they have a performance of this dance throughout the night. Wow. And then our group uh, joined that. And actually, we've been joining that, the performance for the past three years. So we are, going to be, we are very special guests for the villagers. It's real like a guest and host together. So in the middle of some untouristy area, uh-huh. these people celebrating a traditional religious festival would be happy that Americans were there celebrating right. with them. That's right. Andrew, have you had experiences like that? Absolutely. Andy, that is called Kagura. All right. Hey, yeah. Mariko, thank you very much for your insights. Oh, my, my pleasure. Thank you very much. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Andrew, you also bring groups around Japan, and if people want to know more about that, they can go to your website, andrewbender.com, A-N-D-R-E-W-B-E-N-D-E-R.com. Uh, what are some of the um, passions and goals that you have as a tour guide for helping Americans better appreciate Japanese culture? One of the things I always say is that there's really no better place to be a visitor. If I can create a few light bulb moments as we go through the country, I will have done my job. I think Japan is is totally safe, yet totally exotic. And that's one of the impressions that they don't have before they get there. They have the idea of Tokyo being a very modern city. But then you get beyond that. And uh, as Mariko was saying, there are all these little moments that you have, you know, whether you connect with somebody over a glass of sake or over a festival saluting some god, there are all these little surprises that come pretty much every day. Hmm. We have Ruth on the line in Covington, Kentucky. Hi, Ruth. Hi, how are you? Great, thanks for your call. So what are your thoughts on Japan? Well, I lived there for seven years as a, as a teacher. Um, I taught art history uh, to college students. I taught in English. And uh, during that time, I, I had a car so that I could drive everywhere. I was on the island of Kyushu. 
uh, in the town of Miyazaki, and Miyazaki uh, Prefecture is principally known for agriculture and tourism. So uh, there was lots to do. There was a beach two blocks from where I lived, so I got to see the beach culture, but I also went up into the mountains. Mount Takachiho is there, and that's one of the sacred mountains of the Japanese, and I visited lots and lots of shrines and particularly enjoyed going shopping for antiques because I'm an art historian. Hmm. Kyushu is a, a very mountainous island. Uh, it is ringed around by wonderful beaches. It has a lot of history, especially Nagasaki is at the northern end, and I made many trips to Nagasaki with students and with guests because I thought everybody should go there and see yeah. uh, that site. You know, that's a very... I, I went to... Uh... Hiroshima. You're talking about the the site of the of the atomic bomb. Yes, yes. Yeah. In Nagasaki, the the second right, site. Right. I've been to the Hiroshima site, and it is really an inspiration. Andrew, what are your thoughts on uh, sort of making a pilgrimage to the atomic bomb sites? That's something that's quite moving. It it moves you in ways that you don't expect. In Hiroshima, for example, there's the whole string of thousands of cranes that were originally there was a young girl who put together a string of one thousand origami paper cranes as a form of prayer, and that's become a symbol of offering for people mm-hmm. who go there, and it's quite moving. People from around the world make these and hang them there. Nagasaki is also very interesting in that, you know, it wasn't the original target. It was the site of um, one of the original Dutch trading posts, practically the only place that Japan had access to the outside world for about 250 years. And so it became a real center of Western culture, and so for Nagasaki to be bombed was kind of ironic. Hmm. I remember thinking, I'm so nervous about being an American going to the place where we dropped the atomic bomb. And I got there, and I was very impressed by how this was a sort of humanity coming together to learn from this and remember this. And I, I didn't feel it was there was way more Japanese there than there were tourists, and I didn't feel bad about it. I just felt we need to learn from this, and we've got to make sure we never get in that situation again. It was a powerful experience to go to Hiroshima. Ruth, thanks for your call. Thank you. And Kate's on the line in Portland, Oregon. Hi, Kate. Thanks for your call. Hi. Um, I lived in Tokyo for three years, and I just wanted to recommend um, for people to go to Hakone, which is my favorite city to go to. It's really close to Tokyo, only about an hour away, and it's a natural hot spring small town right at the base of Mount Fuji. So it's just a beautiful place, and you can stay in a kind of a budget version of a ryokan. It's called a minshuku. And any time I traveled out of Tokyo, I would always stay in minshukus, huh. which were about half the cost. That's quite right. That's an excellent way to travel. And Hakone is also a great day trip or overnight trip from Tokyo. And minshukus are terrific ways to travel. Uh, everybody has this impression that Japan is a very expensive country, and I'd like to just put that to bed right now. It really doesn't have to be. In fact, in many ways, it's a lot less expensive than traveling around the U.S., the cost of a minshiku per night is probably no more than a, or your sort of average motel, you know, perhaps on the California coast. Uh, so it's not terribly expensive, and you get two meals with it, too, typically. And you're surrounded by Japanese travelers and biz- business, uh, what do you call it, salarymen? Yeah, huh? Salarymen would more stay in business hotels, which, again, don't have to be expensive at all. Okay. Kate, thanks for your call. Okay, thank you. And I think that's a Bye. very good point, is to, to remember that Japan is not as expensive as its reputation. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Andrew Bender, the co-author of The Lonely Planet Guide to Japan. And uh, Andy, Kate was just talking about Hakone, which is at the base of Mount Fuji. You've actually hiked Mount Fuji, right? I have. I have. Uh, The official climbing season for Mount Fuji is uh, the months of July and August. Uh, You don't want to try to climb out there. The government very strongly deters people from doing that. And on top of which, it's quite dangerous. In the first half of this decade, there were a number of people who lost their lives climbing in the snow season. It gets snowy up there uh, very quickly after the climbing season ends. So you're saying July and August, it's a reasonable hike for somebody who's just a good mountain climber or a mountain hiker? You don't even have to be a mountain climber. All you have to do is be a pretty good hiker. Right. And it's just, it's um, it's not that it's strenuous, but it is very tall. It's very high. The classic way to climb Mount Fuji, by the way, is to climb at night, and so that you arrive in, in time to watch the sunrise over Mount Fuji. Wow. And that's quite special, uh, especially if you're above the cloud level. It, it's really quite spectacular. The mountain is uh, about 14,000 feet tall. And it has a certain religious significance in Japan, doesn't it? That's correct. It's a holy mountain. 
Uh, many mountains in Japan are holy. You'll have modern uh, hikers, you'll have tourists, and you'll have pilgrims going up. That's correct. And, you know, just for your reference, it can be quite crowded climbing Mount Fuji on a weekend in summer. But if you go during the week, it's, it's not as bad. There are also little huts up there where you can uh, take a rest if you like to when it gets too cold and it does get chilly up there pretty much all year round. There's some sort of uh, elegance about Japanese culture. You've got, uh, you know, huts on the way up to Mount Fuji that would have a certain charm. You've got these incredible ryokan experiences. You've got food that the presentation is sort of an art form. You've got that wonderful Zen kind of simplicity in the countryside. You've got a traditional culture thriving amidst a modern, high-powered economic machine. That's quite right. And I think one of the great things about Japan is that even in the midst of this very modern society, you'll find something that's very traditional. And sometimes it might be something that you see, like there might be a small shrine just off to the side of the street in a very, very busy neighborhood, even in downtown Tokyo. Or if you look carefully, you might see it in the way that somebody pours tea for you or serves you a sweet using both hands and giving you a bow as they do it. It's really a wonderful country. And as I said before, I think it's an amazing place to be a visitor. And I got to say, it's one place where those who equip themselves with good information and expect themselves to travel knowingly and sensitively about this uh, fascinating culture have a much richer travel experience. I couldn't agree more. Andrew Bender, co-author of The Lonely Planet Guide to Japan, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, how do you say bon voyage in Japanese? <laughs> Iterashai. 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 Domo arigato. We're sharing tales of how the kindness of strangers saved the day at 877-333-7425. It's coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel writer Don George collected tales of kindness on the road for an anthology of road stories that Lonely Planet published just a few years ago. Don's back with us right now on Travel with Rick Steves to share more stories from his book about the kindness of strangers. Don George, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. It's great to be in touch with you again. So The Kindness of Strangers, that must have been a fun book to put together. It was a wonderful book to put together. It was a very life-reaffirming book. The idea was I discovered in my own travels around the world, two things always happen to me. One is I get into trouble. That always happens wherever I go. And the other is that somebody comes out of nowhere to take care of me and get me out of trouble. And I thought, I wonder if other people have had this same experience. And I asked a number of writers I know, and everybody had that experience. It was universal, and they all had a wonderful story to tell. And that was the genesis for the book. And then we opened it up to other contributors, and we were just flooded with stories all around this theme of people taking care of other people on the road. Now, you've got some well-known travel writers on the list and some uh, unknown travel writers who had just as uh, valuable experiences. Exactly. I'm really, really pleased that part of the premise of the book is that we have marquee name, very famous best-selling travel writers like Jan Morris and Simon Winchester and Pico Iyer, Dave Eggers, and then we have people who literally had never been published anywhere before. And we found their stories. Lonely Planet published the book, and we had a competition on the Lonely Planet website where we invited people to send in their stories of kindness on the road. And I was able to pick a number of stories from that competition. That was another, I thought, sort of nice act of kindness, publishing people who'd never been published before and who probably never thought they'd be sitting right next to Jan Morris or Simon Winchester in a book. 
And to top it off, you got the Dalai Lama and his specialty is <laughs> kindness. And you got him right. to write a forward on the book. And reading the forward, I got a sense he didn't read the book, but he sure is a fan of kindness. And of course, he would write things like, our own happiness is inextricably bound up in the happiness of others. How did you get the Dalai Lama to uh, contribute to this book? Well, that was really the ultimate act of kindness, I think. I know someone who knows someone who knows someone who knows someone who's associated with the Dalai Lama, and I began a long email correspondence that step by step by step got closer and closer to His Holiness. And then one day, a, a magical email arrived in my inbox from the office of His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, and it was a one-sentence email saying, His Holiness would be pleased to contribute an introduction to your book. And I just oh. felt like the skies had opened up and uh, the heavens were singing. I was just thrilled by that. And it serves his passion and, and his beliefs because I, I love this notion that he wrote in the intro. The Dalai Lama wrote, uh, there are hundreds of millions of acts of kindness at this moment, far more than acts of violence. Perhaps so common, they go unnoticed. You know, that's an interesting thing that they're just routine and, and we focus on the odd acts of violence, but this world right. is just swimming in acts of kindness. And that's something that travelers celebrate. You mentioned, Don, that some of your best memories are when you screw up, basically. And uh, I find a lot right. of people are so worried about screwing up that they get their trip all tightened up and pre-organized and, and risk-averse, and they don't let serendipity do its thing. And, and really, if you don't let serendipity run free a little bit, you'll miss a lot of that kindness that's hiding out there. That's exactly it. I mean, we've talked about this before, that in, in my view, the more you open yourself up to the world, the more the world opens itself up to you. And I always try to put that into practice. And as a result, I get into some pretty uh, difficult situations, but I always have some very enriching situation that gets me out of that. Yeah. And something comes along, someone comes along, and the world just takes care of you. And I feel that people really, really do take care of other people around the world. They like other people. We're not predisposed to dislike our fellow human beings. We're actually predisposed to like them. And the news would sometimes have us believe otherwise, but I believe so incredibly passionately that that is true, that human beings like each other and will take care of each other. Well, to get a good example of that, we've got Amanda Jones on the phone, and she's a travel writer from New Zealand who now lives in the Bay Area, and she contributed one of the 26 articles in this book uh, edited by Don George called The Kindness of Strangers. Amanda, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, now you had a fascinating experience. Thankfully, you had some kindness that you encountered uh, one night on the Sahara Desert. Tell us about that. Well, it was one of the many stupid things I've done in my travels, um, and when you travel professionally, it certainly doesn't prevent you from doing stupid things. And as Don was saying, most of the stupid things I've done in my time have gotten me into situations that I have fulfilled my, my faith in humanity. And this was a particularly bad one in that I, I was in the Sahara Desert in Niger, and I was traveling for two weeks in the Sahara, and we couldn't really walk during the day because it was too hot. And I I'm a person who likes to move, and so at nighttime I would tend to just strike out on my own and go for a little walk. Normally there were landmarks that would guide me. On this particular night, however, I just set out, and I was so enchanted by the desert, I did not even think to look at the landforms that I should have looked for. And about 45 minutes out, I stopped, and with dread in my stomach, realized I had no idea where I was, uh, and it was getting very cold. I had... I come with almost no clothing and a thin cotton shirt on, no water. Uh, and in my, my daydream or my nightdream of, of wandering around the Sahara so gleefully, I had completely lost track of where I'd come from, which was just a little camp. Uh, we didn't even have tents. We were under mosquito nets on the desert floor. And, of course, by then everyone was asleep and there was no light in any direction. Um, so I kept walking, and it dawned on me that I had gotten myself into a potentially life-threatening situation and that my folly was so great uh, I didn't know how to get myself out of it. And after panicking for a couple of minutes, um, I started to walk again and realized I was even more lost. And then on the horizon, I saw a smudge of fire. And now one of the dangers of the Sahara is you, you don't just wander into somebody's camp, but I had no option. So I walked towards the fire, and there was a lone man, a lone Wadabi tribesman sitting there. And he was traveling across the desert. He had a, His camel was lying to the side. 
I tried to speak to him in French, but it was clear he didn't speak any French, and I obviously don't speak for Fuldi. But he graciously gestured for me to sit down, and he was making tea, as they always have, their mint tea. And he served me tea, and I tried to explain that I was lost and help. And it seemed to me he didn't understand a word I was saying, but he was so gracious. And then after about half an hour of having this tea in silence, he just stood up and he took my hand and he led me for about half an hour through the desert. And lo and behold, he took me right back to my camp. And not only was that staggering because of his kindness of taking this strange woman dressed in khaki clothing out into his camp and, and getting me warm again and giving me tea, but he knew, he knew the desert, and he knew where to take me back. He must have seen our party heading in a certain direction earlier that day. So he delivered me safely back to my camp. It was a moment of, of great beauty, and I was tremendously grateful. Wow. That's all I got to say. <laughs> well, imagine that. Had that friendly man not been there or not been friendly, you wouldn't be talking with us today. I don't think so. You never know. But I, I would have. It gets very cold, and most people don't know how cold it gets in the desert at night. And without water, and in the desert, and we really were in a featureless part of the desert. I could have been wandering, and my party could have been looking for me for days without me being found. You know, how does that stick with you, Amanda, just in the spirit of humanity and helping each other and so on, once you've had that experience? Well, the message that I got from that, because, of course, I've had so many people help me in my life, but the one thing that I learned from that one is that it can be without language. We did not share any common language, and yet he understood my plight and he was kind to me without really truly knowing who I was, without learning anything about me. It was just one human being kind to another, and that doesn't require language. Boy, that's an inspiration. One Night in the Sahara by Amanda Jones. Amanda, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Beautiful story. Don, that must have been so yeah. interesting to collect these, and you must have had 26 made the cut. Was it tough yeah. to get it down to 26? It was. It was very tough. We had about... 600 stories to weed through. And there were some great stories. And just now listening to Amanda's tale, I once again got goosebumps. <laughs> and imagine my joy as the editor reading a story like that that's so incredibly moving and then having that experience repeated 25 more times with yeah. these amazing transcendent tales. Oh, it's just fun. This is Rick Steves. Uh, this is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Don George. He edits an online travel magazine called Recce. The website for that is geoex.com. And Don is also the host of the adventure travel website called Don's Place. Right now we're talking about the book Don's edited called The Kindness of Strangers. We've got uh, Hannah on the line in North Carolina that has a, a similar story to share. Hannah, thanks for your call. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, what's your kindness story experience then when you're far from home? Well, I was living overseas, and mine is a little bit more of a comment, but I take part in a program called Couchsurfing which is kind of a voluntary thing where people open up their homes to you and you can go and just spend the night if you're just passing through or sometimes a uh, family can host you for up to a week. And I've just covered pretty much all of Europe couch surfing and you can travel for free pretty much just on the kindness of strangers letting you into their homes and it's, it's been wonderful. Wow, tell us more how that works because I've heard about it but uh, I think it's new to a lot of people. Something that I've found has been much more popular in Europe, but they have a website, and it's just couchsurfing.com, and it's something where you can go on, and I feel like a lot of people are a little bit hesitant, you know, going into somebody's home that they don't really know as well, but they've got a website where you can make a profile, and you rely pretty much entirely on references from other people. So the only way for you to get well-connected in this organization is to really go out and experience things. So... The fact that I've traveled and hosted quite a few people, people who have in turn stayed with me or hosted me can write reviews about whether I was respectful or what kind of person I am. And it's just a great network so that you can go and see other people's cultures from a really like genuine perspective. You get to stay with these host families who can take you to the local markets and can introduce you to their grandparents. It's just, it's really great. That was probably one of my best moments is my host took me to her Finnish grandmother's house who spoke no English, and she had me sign her her book that had all of the visitors who came in, and I was the only American in her book. In other words, with this feedback system, if you're 
creepy and smelly and scary, <laughs> it'll be clear. And people will say, uh, we're, we're not home tonight. You can't stay on our couch. But if you're a charming person and if you had a good experience meeting and sharing and having fun with people around the continent or whatever, they'll read that and say, ah, you sound like a fun person to have over. Yes, yes. And it's a great kind of checks and balances where you can see that this person does have a lot of experience and they have others saying and that can vouch for them who are saying, you know, this person is someone who you can welcome into your home and share other experiences with them. So I think it's a wonderful program that not very many people have been utilizing. Don, what have you heard about couch surfing? I've heard great things about it. And, and I think the, the point is exactly that this is a, a way into a local culture with local people. They'll take you to the grandmother's house or the local market or the local restaurant. And so you get this really intimate insider's view of a place. And I, I think it's a wonderful phenomenon. It wasn't possible before the Internet came along, and now it's just growing leaps and bounds. And it's really uh, motored by kindness. People aren't looking for money. They just uh, enjoy other people. And I, I would suppose there needs to be a spirit, Amanda, when you are a guest, that you are going to spend some time with these people and, and just be a friend. Yes, and that's been the most wonderful thing, is that you can just really go and you know have a coffee or have a drink or share dinner with someone and just really get to know their background and, you know, where they've traveled and what they love about their culture, and you really get a chance to share with people. And it's, it's been really, truly wonderful. I've met some of the most amazing people doing it. And the irony is you're saving $100 a night on accommodations and having a better experience than people who are trying to wait to check into their room. That is the best part, yes. Hannah from North Carolina. We'll check out uh, couchsurfing.com. Thanks for your tip. Thanks so much. And Mary's on the line in Wisconsin. Mary, do you have some uh, tales of the kindness of strangers? I absolutely do. Yes, I've had many experiences over the years, you know, that, you know, you've encountered people and had problems, and someone's always jumps in and is more than willing to help you, even if they don't speak your language. You know, communication is much more nonverbal than it is verbal, so you can get along very well without knowing very little in terms of languages. But I had an experience a couple of years ago in Cairo that was one of those experiences that I'll probably never forget, and every time I think about it yet, I, I still get goosebumps. I wanted to use the Internet, and I had gone for a walk looking for a place to use the Internet. And the streets in Cairo, I don't know if you've ever been there or not, but they have six or seven or eight lanes going each direction. And there's no real lane markings. And the cars are just zipping along in whichever lane they want to be and sometimes straddling lanes and that sort of thing. And they don't have any street lights. And the way that you get across the street there is you just step into traffic and you trust and the cars stop, you know, and then you walk on across, and they start going again. And I had watched this happening with people a bit and decided, well, I'm going to give it a try, you know. So I'd start to step into traffic, and then I was, it just seemed like it was way too heavy, and I'd back up because it was frightening. It was very frightening to me. And all of a sudden, as I was standing there trying to cross the street, I felt someone take hold of my hand, and I turned and looked. And it was a, uh, an Arab woman who was dressed in black from head to toe, and she took a hold of my hand, and she pulled me out into traffic with her, and we stopped on the island in the middle, and she kept a tight hold on my hand. And then she stepped into traffic again and pulled me all the way across the street with her. And then she turned when we got across the street, and she bowed to me, and then she let go of my hand, and she turned and went back across the street and disappeared on down the street. And it, was just, it just says to me that there are wonderful people everywhere you go, and there's always somebody that will help you out if you need some help. And I think that we're a lot more alike in the world than we are different. Wow. And we're also sometimes confused by what we see. You might yeah. look at somebody covered in black and think they're so different, but when yeah. they grab you by the hand, take you through the traffic, and then bow to say goodbye. Yes, yes. It was just one of those wonderful experiences that, that I'll never forget. Mary in Wisconsin, thanks for sharing that. That's beautiful. Don George, editor of The Kindness of Strangers. I guess all you got to do is open up the phone lines and you get all these uh, good and <laughs> inspirational examples. Well, I've been doing readings at bookstores around the country, and you just get tale after tale after tale at the end of these readings. Everybody, it seems, has a story to tell, and it makes me think that we should just bring out version two of Kindness of Strangers because it truly does transcend culture, upbringing, religious belief, uh, economic class, kindness transcends all of that and binds us wherever we go. It's a beautiful thought, and that's one of the great lessons you learn when you travel, is that we have more in common than we have uh, that separates us. Yes. Don George, editor of The Kindness of Strangers, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Rick.
From time to time on Travel with Rick Steves, we share haiku that our listeners send us about their travels. There's a link in the radio section of ricksteves.com for sending us your original travel poems. Here are some listener compositions about the home of the haiku, Japan. Donna Gatewood and Larry Elskin from Ames, Iowa, sent us this one. A single orchid, alone in a simple vase. This is my Japan. Naomi Beth Walken lives on Gabriola Island, British Columbia. She went to Japan for a two-week holiday and ended up staying for two years. She's published a large number of books, including Haiku, One Breath Poetry, and she emailed us the following. He bows to the Buddha for a favor and to us for blocking our camera lens. Women, together, our kimono sleeves don't brush by chance. And when I die and go to Buddha's seventh heaven, he'll serve me sashimi. And Kathy Stork from Vashon Island, Washington, sends us this haiku about her son's experience on spring break in Japan with his high school Japanese class. He remembers fondly how his host returned his laundry. She offers her gift, folded like origami, my washed travel clothes. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Send us your original travel haiku or a short essay extolling the sights of your hometown. Details are in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Thanks to Bob Carlson at KCRW Santa Monica and to Monte Carlos at KQED San Francisco for their engineering help today. I'm the show's producer, Tim Tatton. Join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick's weekly one-hour radio program, Travel with Rick Steves, airs in more than 100 cities across the country. Listen to podcasts of past shows in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Rick's public television series, Rick Steves Europe, also airs throughout the USA. You'll find the latest on Rick's TV and radio work, as well as his guidebooks and his free-spirited European tour program at ricksteves.com.